Welcome to the America's Quarterly Podcast. I'm Brian Winter. Most of the international community is rejecting Nicaragua's sham presidential election. But is it too late to stop Daniel Ortega? It's a short opportunity that we have because authoritative regimes can be very creative with time. So the more time that we give them, the more we are buying time for autocrats and not for democracy. If there was any doubt before, there's none now. Nicaragua has joined Venezuela and Cuba on the list of dictatorships in the Western Hemisphere, following the sham election on November 7th, in which Daniel Ortega jailed his political opponents and then declared himself the winner. So now we're faced with lots of new questions. What happens next? Is there any chance that Ortega perhaps relaxes a bit now that he has his new so-called mandate? Is there anything the rest of Latin America and the world can do to pressure for a return to democracy? And finally, what are the possible consequences for the rest of the region if Nicaragua's crisis continues to get worse? Is there any chance of a Venezuela-style meltdown? Today's episode will have two guests as we try to sort through these questions. The first is Maria Lili Delgado an independent journalist who has done work for Univision since Ortega's return to power in 2006. She's also a co-founder of the Huellas de la Impunidad journalistic project, which tracks impunity in the country. Maria Lilly, thank you for being here. It's a pleasure to have you with us during what I can imagine have been some very tense and busy days. Uh, yes, uh, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity, Brian, to talk about Nicaragua and what is happening in Nicaragua, especially since 2018, that my country has been living systematic violation of human rights. Well, so Maria Lily, my question is, uh, what's it like on the ground now in Nicaragua now that this sham election is over? I mean, as you just pointed out, there has been a massive wave of arrests and repression Uh, going back to 2018, but that accelerated over the last few months. What can we expect now? I mean, is there a sense that things may get even worse or will the regime perhaps relax a bit now that it has its quote unquote mandate? There are some facts that are really relevant to share. The ones who cover Nicaragua, you know, like for years, because I have been covering Nicaragua since 1992, I have seen, you know, like different uh, elections. And we all know that, uh, for example, Ortega always wait, you know, like to the last minute, you know, like to go out and vote. And this Sunday happened something, you know, like really different. He went out at noon to talk at noon. There is a brutal abstention, you know, like from voting. So Ortega has to go out, you know, like and explain their bases. The face that Ortega and Murillo was not like a kind of a victory faces, even though they are declaring victory. Because to be clear, there was a movement in Nicaragua to stay at home as a form of showing displeasure with the regime. In a situation where there were no credible opposition candidates on the ballot, that was kind of the one mechanism that people had to show their lack of support for the regime. So what you're saying is that you interpret what he did as feeling insecure about what was happening during the voting on Sunday. Urnas Abiertas reported that there was this abstention 
of more than 80% of voters. But on the other side, the official narrative is saying that Ortega and the electoral power which is controlled by Ortega and his wife, that they have a victory with more than 74% of the votes. So it's like two narratives. But at the end of the day, the government is saying that there was this massive participation. And honestly, I remember in 2001, for example, that it was like five or six o'clock in the afternoon and the polls couldn't close because there was this massive participation. And we have seen that. Sunday, November 7, that was not the story. So what do you think is going to happen now? It's very unpredictable and very risky to say what is going to happen in Nicaragua. But I would say that as journalists who witness, you know, like we are witness of the story, it is interesting to see that even in the middle of the repressive system that Nicaraguans are living And in the middle of everything, you know, like the majority of Nicaragua find a way to protest. So what will happen This is a story that we are seeing also as a journalist, you know, like how many countries, you know, like will not recognize that election. How this political statements that we're seeing from Chile, Costa Rica, the United States, the European Union uh, countries, you know, like how all these political statements will turn into actions and what, what kind of action they will implement in order to pressure the Ortega regime government to change the course or to celebrate fair and free elections, which I think some countries are asking for. Talk to me, Maria Lili, about the difficulties of doing journalism in today's Nicaragua. Uh, what are the, some of the obstacles that journalists have been facing, especially over these last couple months and now that the election is over? Well, to report in Nicaragua, it's really hard, especially if you are like an independent journalist, because, for example, the regime see the independent media as their enemies, as the vice president has called communication terrorists. They have promoted what they call uncontaminated information. Uncontaminated information is to control information and inform the citizens of Nicaragua through their official media outlet. For example, the regime has many of their children runs and direct television channels. Channel 4, Channel 13, Channel 8, and then they have the estate channel which is all of them are used for propaganda. Then in all these years, I'm, I'm speaking especially uh, since 2018, Ortega has confiscated at least three independent media outlets. Nicaragua doesn't have a newspaper printed. I think it's the only country in Latin America which doesn't have a newspaper. Ortega confiscated where La Prensa was functioning. La Prensa is the oldest newspaper in Nicaragua. If I'm not wrong, it has more than 93 years of existence. And it was confiscated, and his CEO now is in Yale. Confidencial, an investigated digital magazine, has been twice confiscated. Then the third uh, media outlet who has been confiscated is 100% Noticia. 24-hour TV news, who was confiscated in December of 2018. His owner back then was the first journalist to be in prison for at least six months. And now he's in prison again. So that's the kind of things that Nicaragua is living. Uh, you have confiscated media outlets, journalists in prison. In May, the prosecutor office started, you know, like 
calling dozens of journalists, including myself, you know, like to testify in the case that the government is um, promoting against the close Violeta Barrios Chamorro Foundation, which promoted in Nicaragua for the past, I don't know, more than 20 years, freedom of expression and access to public information. So when you, to answer your question, sorry, you know, it's, it's too much what happened in Nicaragua. When you go out and report to the streets, you find the police everywhere, you, you know, like that they intimidate you in a way. It's really hard to do uh, news coverage in Nicaragua. However, many of my colleagues, we are doing all what we can to continue reporting. Well, it sounds terrifying, but it sounds like there's a lot of people with, with a lot of courage who, who continue to do it. Yeah, you go out to report despite the threats, despite, you know, like the paramilitaries, despite the police, because journalists don't know if you're going to get detained, if your cell phone is going to be stolen, or then there are people, you know, like this paramilitary groups who takes picture of you all the time because you're reporting in order to intimidate, to send the message that here we are, we're seeing what you're doing, you know, and that is everyday situation when you're reporting in Nicaragua. Is there any tactic the world could use that would really have an effect on the Ortega-Murillo regime, though? Because we've seen time and again in the case of Venezuela, where you know the world gets together and, and there are sanctions and they kind of threaten diplomatic ostracism. And it doesn't really seem to change anything. I guess another way of asking this is, is it really, is it too late? do you think, for the world to do anything about what's happening in, in Nicaragua? Well, I, I think never is too late <laughs> to start with. So one of the things that I would say is that um, what can the community, international community do is pay constantly attention to Nicaragua, you know, because this crisis come from 10 years ago, you know. Ortega, for example, got reelected the first time in 2011 against the constitution. So this election was really historic in a way because history in Nicaragua has told us that through fair elections and in free elections, you can change a system. It happened in 1990 when Violeta Chamorro defeated Daniel Ortega through election in a very tumultuous transition, but it went from war to peace. And Nicaraguans we're hoping that this election could could be again, you know, like a solution. Well, that didn't happen. So what will be the solution? We don't know yet, but history tells us that the dynasty of Somoza, for example, had an end too. So now Ortega is being compared as the Somoza dynasty. And we, as a journalist, we know that every dynasty has an end. We don't know when and how, but has an end. All right. Well, we'll be watching everything closely there, Maria Lily. Thank you so much. Best of luck to you. And we hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you for the opportunity. I know that there is so much more to say about Nicaragua, but if the international community can do something, it's to pay more closely attention for Nicaragua. This crisis hasn't started now. It's started, you know, like 10 years ago, you know, yeah, no, no, no question. Thank you so much. Thank you. Our second guest on this episode is Isabel St. Malo, the former vice president and minister of foreign affairs of Panama. 
and also a member of our editorial board. Isabel recently authored a piece for America's Quarterly asking what the world should do now in the wake of the so-called election. Isabel, thank you so much for joining us. You are an advocate for strong international reaction to the Ortega Murillo dictatorship, and you have several specific ideas which I want to discuss. But, you know, first, we just had this conversation with a Nicaraguan journalist. Um, She made clear just how bad things have been on the ground, really going all the way back to 2018. And my question for you, Isabel, is, is it now too late for the international community to act? Has the window passed for any kind of action that might have averted a different scenario? Definitely not too late, Brian, and thank you so much for this conversation. And not too late because even though the sham happened Sunday, it's a perfect timing for the international community to come together and coordinate for specific, concrete measures, not recognizing the results of this so-called election, which we know already for a fact that it was a sham and not an election, and take additional measures to the measures that the international community has already been taken for the past month. I, I also think that it's a short window of opportunity that we have because authoritative regimes can be very, very creative with time and initiate different efforts that will intend to legitimize the sham. So the more time that we give them, the more we are buying time for autocrats and not for democracy. I believe that the response should be strong, immediate, coordinated, and global. All right, well, fair enough. So what are the specifics? What do you think could get this regime's attention and force a different outcome in a way that other sanctions in places like Nicaragua, and if you go way back, Cuba, uh, have not succeeded? Where are the pressure points and what are the tools the international community should use? The pressure points, points are various. First and foremost, diplomatic. Not recognizing the results of the election, withdrawing ambassadors from Nicaragua, expelling Nicaragua out of the Organization of American States, taking steps in multilateral organizations for diplomatic measures, condemning what happened on Sunday. So that's the first thing to do. The second thing to do is sanctions. And then, of course, economic sanctions come into play. I need to express the dangers of economic sanctions, which we are aware of. We need to make sure that The sanctions are very delicate in terms of being strong enough to hit the government, taking into consideration that sanctions usually also hit the people of Nicaragua. Having said that, the people of Nicaragua probably already know that some difficulties are going to need to be swallowed for this to be fixed. The stronger we come and the fastest we come, the less time those sanctions will have to hit the people of Nicaragua. So economic sanctions such as what happens to trade, what happens to CAFTA and the mechanisms for exporting Nicaraguan goods. There again, we need to make sure that these mechanisms are directed mostly to the government, not allowing them to have fresh resources, not allowing them to have financial flows. Economic sanctions also include loans, For a long time, financial institutions have continued, even though we have seen what's happening in Nicaragua, have continued to 
provide fresh financial flows to the government of Nicaragua. The BSEA has done that continuously and others. So we need to hold loans so that we do not provide fresh financial flows to the government of Nicaragua. Thirdly, sanctions need to be taken as well against the people that form the regime itself and the people that sustain the regime. And sanctions there can take many forms. We can review what happens to the, the permits to travel to other democratic countries with visas. We would need to take a close look to the types of activities that they are performing and seeing if these activities are legal, should they be included in mechanisms such as OFAC. So I would say immediately those are the most important things. Isabel, you mentioned the need for sanctions to be, I think you said, delicate, targeted, calibrated, perhaps. Uh, and that reflects a real debate that there's been about sanctions. And that debate has been around for a long time, but it has become more heated again in the wake of the U.S. sanctions against Venezuela a couple of years ago, which had the same design. They were designed to put pressure on a dictatorial regime, but they seem to have, in fact, I mean, they've clearly accentuated the economic problems and therefore the suffering of ordinary Venezuelans. And of course, the dictatorship hasn't gone anywhere. Now, it sounds to me like for Nicaragua, you're advocating something that's just targeted against you know, the specific leaders and kind of the economic enablers of that regime, but then it risks not really having enough effect. And it all leads back to the same place for me, which is on the one hand, what's happening is such an outrage. And on the other, it feels to me like we've seen again and again that once it gets to this stage, these sanctions, they just don't they don't work because these dictatorships are willing to ignore all kinds of economic pain on behalf of their citizens and use all of the tools of repression that are at their disposal to stay in power. Why would this be any different? I think what you're mentioning is, is central. It's the key, really. That's why I insist on the small window. And that's why I insist on acting fast, because it is not the same thing putting out all of the possible efforts immediately at once to shake the regime out of their own feet as putting a sanction today and then another sanction within a month. And that's why I also make an emphasis of the coordinated response of the international community. And we have not been very good at that. We need to be better at that. You know, this week, this week, the European Union, the United States, democratic countries from the Americas and others came together, joined forces, and established a common position fast. It's sort of like when you are engaging with someone in a fight with your fists, it's a different thing. If you act strong from the, from the beginning and, and just knock out your opponent as if you, you know, you are strong, but you are, you know, you go back and forth. It's not the same thing. I see it in a similar way. We, we need a knockout. 
So as I mentioned at the beginning, Isabel, you're a former vice president of Panama. What appetite do you see from other Central American countries for this kind of action? Because that strikes me as really the key. It's one thing for the United States to do something, and the United States retains a lot of power, but also has just tremendous history with Nicaragua, a lot of it negative, that makes whatever action comes out of Washington complicated, to use a polite term. What are the other countries in the region and what, you know, what's the appetite for some sort of real action from them? Well, I have seen some things that give me hope and some others that don't. Before I go into that, let me just briefly say why I mentioned specifically the United States. And it's because the United States, it is the strongest, most powerful democratic country in the hemisphere. And let's be clear Countries in this hemisphere that have a strong relationship with the United States, like my own country and many others, it's important to do these things in coordination with this strong partner. We cannot ignore that. That's a reality. And also measures from stronger partners like the United States and the European Union are harsher on countries. That's a reality. So so that's one thing. So what have I seen that, that I like? Costa Rica came out the day of the election, actually. The Costa Rica came out very, very strongly, stating that the process did not provide any condition or democratic guarantee and that they did not recognize the elections. They called on the government of Nicaragua to immediately release all political prisoners and called for democracy. So that's that's very important. My own country, uh, Panama, came out uh, on Monday with a message uh, um, somewhat more uh, polite or more uh, diplomatic, let's let's say, than than Costa Rica, but nevertheless an important message. Panama uh, stated, re- re- demanded the immediate release of political prisoners as well, and stated that the conditions were not there for the democratic process. So I I think that's very positive. What I did not like, on Sunday, the Central American Parliament, they came out, I think the word was something like, we salute the electoral process in Nicaragua. And I I was like, what do you salute? You know, what what are you talking about? That this is a fraud. So going back to your question, the region has very tough problems right now. The North Triangle of Central America has such important problems that democracy in Nicaragua is not going to be on their first list. So I I don't have great hopes. But again, with a U.S. strong position, which which the U.S. government, I believe, sent an important message, uh, if they build on that and... And, and rally their partners. You know, the U.S. needs to sit on the phone like, like they do for many other things and call their partners and, and coordinate an action. Uh, uh, the United States knows how to do that. And I think that will be important. And, and, and we will find support in countries like Costa Rica, Panama, and, and many others. Final question for you, Isabel. I mean, some people um, understand that, that, of course, democracy is important. Um, and they ask, oh, well, Nicaragua, small country, um, it's not really relevant to what happens in the rest of the hemisphere. I 
suppose you could look at people have understood that, for example, with the implosion of Venezuela that we saw over the last four or five years and the exodus of people from there, people understand that sometimes what happens in these authoritarian regimes can have consequences for other countries as well. I mean, what? how would you convince someone who you know, doesn't really care so much about Nicaragua so much on a day-to-day basis? What are the risks for the rest of the hemisphere? Nicaragua is an important piece for the United States. And, and I say for the United States because that's where traffic travels to. If we talk about Drug trafficking, drug trafficking travels from South America to North America. Human trafficking as well. And yes, this is important for the stability of the hemisphere. Democracy in Nicaragua is not relevant only for Nicaragua. It's relevant for Central America and for the Latin American hemisphere. All right. Isabel, thank you so much for joining us on the AQ Podcast. Thank you, Brian. Great talking to you. Thank you for listening to the America's Quarterly podcast. You can read more at americasquarterly.org. Finally, if you enjoyed the episode, please give us a review, leave us a rating, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The America's Quarterly podcast is produced by Brendan O'Boyle and Gabrielle Cohen. America's Quarterly is an independent, not-for-profit publication of America's Society and the Council of the Americas.